0: It seems like both yesterday and a lifetime ago when I was in the studio in our Westchester office with Mary Mirabelli, our Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Delivery, and Bill Casey, our Senior Vice President of Member Experience and Business Development. And today they're back on the podcast along with our President and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer. But Of course, we aren't in the studio or in the office at all. We're all working from home. So we are here to talk about an announcement that went out yesterday about the annual conference in San Antonio. So Joe, you want to start us off talking about that?
1: Obviously, we're in unprecedented times and all of us at HFMA and all of our members are dealing with extraordinary circumstances that even four, six, eight weeks ago, we wouldn't have imagined that we were dealing with. And so the decision that we've made and announced was a difficult decision, but an inevitable decision to cancel our annual conference this year, which was scheduled for late June in San Antonio. I have to be honest, uh, it's a sad decision. Um, That's a great event. And so many people over so many years have enjoyed coming. Not just for the content, but for the socialization uh, element, and that's a great connection spot. So it was a sad decision, but it does reflect the reality of where we're at. It's the right decision for all kinds of reasons, and it just reflects the kinds of issues that all of our members are dealing with, whether they're business partners or working in health systems or health plans or physician offices. And so our decision reflects that reality. But, you know, the sadness, I would say, ends there. And one of the things that we want to convey in this podcast is how we're making lemonade out of lemons. We are absolutely committed to delivering the content that you desire as members. And Mary and Bill are going to walk you through some of the details.
2: Thanks, Joe. And, um, again, sad, but we absolutely know it's the right decision to do for certainly the association, but more importantly for our members and our business partners. What we know is that good content delivered effectively is something that our members need now more than ever. And our virtual conference last week, I think, was a testament to that. We had originally you know, planned an event with a number of sessions and then COVID-19 happened, and we totally changed that agenda to really reflect what we knew our members really needed. So we had an interview with Joe. We had Levitt Partners give us an overall forecast on what's happening in the industry. We had deep, deep content delivered on all of the telehealth and telemedicine changes, and then on all of the Medicaid expansion and other Medicaid changes. So tremendous attendance, over 2,000 registrants for that virtual conference with fabulous feedback on how important that is. We are really reimagining our 2020 event as a virtual experience. So the team at HFMA has been fabulous in working together to assemble a timely session lineup. The fabulous news is that we're going to offer this reimagined way of delivering all this great content. All HFMA members will be able to attend and earn CPEs, and it is part and parcel of your all-inclusive membership. We're in the midst of working out all of those details because we do also want to look at all the sessions and make sure that we are being great listeners to say what kind of sessions make sense, and I'm almost reluctant to say a post-COVID world Because I'm just not sure when post COVID we'll really be afraid that we can use pretty cleanly and clearly. But as we get through the summer and the fall, we're really reimagining a virtual experience that will extend over a number of months, but deliver the kind of content that you all need, as well as earn those CPEs that many of you want to maintain your certifications. But more importantly, we just want to deliver a great experience and the great kind of information you will need. Uh, certainly, our members need to move forward in this world as things change. So that's kind of where we are.
3: Yeah, our teams have been working really hard. And, and I, I have to echo something that Mary said, and that is that we've been doing it with the input from our members and our business partners. We do listen. We take the calls. We read the emails. And we actually reach out proactively to understand exactly what's going on in the market. And we're looking at other examples of other organizations that have had to make this tough decision too. Some are doing it right and some are missing the mark. And we take all of those things into the evaluation of of what we do next. That means that we're still learning. You'll see updates on our website with more details to help make decisions around this. And we'll be setting up meetings with our business partners in the next couple of weeks to talk about the options that are out there. Uh, that, that allow them to continue to conduct business during these uncertain times in meaningful ways that, that the traditional attendees would have.
0: Thank you all very much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks Erica. Erica. Thank you, Erica. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, I'm joined by Rick Kess and Matt Wolf from RSM to talk about the CARES Act and FEMA. I also have an interview with Aaron Bunowski from the Chartist Group about how to keep the CARE team in mind when developing consumerism strategies. All that's coming up after we go Beyond the News. Rich Daly is out. So once again, I am joining HFMA Policy Director Chad Mulvaney on Beyond the News. Hey, Chad.
4: Hey, Erica. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm well. It's good to have you here.
0: So... Millions of Americans started getting their stimulus payments this week, but CNN is now reporting there's a loophole that could be bad news for healthcare organizations and especially their patients. Um, debt collectors, including those who pursue medical debt, can go after these stimulus funds. Chad, what does this mean for providers?
4: Given that collection agencies can potentially attach these payments... I think as a provider, it's worth thinking about whether this is something that you would be comfortable with having in the paper. And if it's not, given the scrutiny that providers are currently have been getting for their collection practices is certainly the scrutiny that we anticipate being ramped up around the COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly if it's not something that you'd be comfortable with, I think it's probably worth a conversation with your business partners. Just to understand whether or not this is a strategy that they're using. And if it's not something you'd be comfortable with, maybe suggesting alternatives. Because obviously, you know, if you were surprised by this or it happened, it could be an awkward conversation, not only with the local media, but your board and could take a situation where the health system has been elevated in a very positive way and quickly kind of tarnish that potentially. So I think it's it's certainly something that organizations will want to consider and think about as they think about their medical accounts receivable resolution strategies.
0: A lot of people are having a hard time right now. I think the latest number is that 22 million people are unemployed in the U.S. And obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how to do right by patients in this environment. What can providers do to keep patients from getting to collections in the first place and and helping them out?
4: yeah you know we're we're seeing a whole host of strategies by different health systems and a lot of it's based on their market a lot of it's based on their their financial strength but you know one of the things that i would suggest is that you know just generally we've seen hospitals and health systems hold self pay claims related to covid-19 cases just so that the payment landscape sort of shakes itself out obviously we've gotten more clarity particularly over the weekend from cms and HHS and the tri agencies releasing their guidance, which sort of helps clarify some of the self pay billing issues around cost sharing for COVID 19 testing. So that's sort of one thing. And then, certainly, you know, in a lot of places where you have uninsured COVID patients who are now in for treatment, certainly we have a number of organizations that are holding claims because the vice president, Mike Pence, has suggested that those payments for those services would be made out of the CARES Act Provider Relief Fund. However, we're still waiting on details for that. So obviously, you've got organizations that are holding claims just until the environment sort of settles out. So that's strategy one. We've seen some organizations even go as far as to suspend self-pay collections activities for the next 30 days just to let the economic environment settle out. And then they will come back and reassess what's going on. Just to let people's job situations settle out and also just determine the level of sort of financial turmoil in their communities. We're seeing organizations go back and look at their financial assistance policies in light of both the pandemic and then the associated disruption to make sure that they are providing sort of what the community needs at this given moment. So that's one set of things that organizations can do. You know, I think the other thing right now is just think about beefing up financial counseling and financial navigation. Certainly, given the number of folks that have lost jobs and also potentially job-based health insurance, for those individuals in states that have reopened their state-based exchanges, certainly there's a way for them to get into those exchanges and get enrolled in an insurance product that could potentially, depending on their household income level, be heavily subsidized. For States that are on the federal exchange, obviously the federal exchange hasn't opened, but obviously if you had coverage through your job, that creates a special enrollment period and it creates an opportunity for those individuals who lost job-based insurance to actually gain access to coverage. And again, depending on your financial situation or your, your household income, it could be heavily subsidized. So I think just making sure that people are aware of that is one thing. And while it's sort of intuitive to me or to you, for someone who's just gone through this fairly traumatic experience and they're dealing with the pandemic and they're dealing with a new family situation at home with everybody sheltering in place, you know, this may not be top of mind for them or they may not be aware of it. The other thing is also think through your organizational strategies as to when you might subsidize COBRA coverage. So if the exchange isn't an option or if they miss out on that but still have access to COBRA, that might also be something you'd want to think about.
0: So a lot yet to be seen, but as always, quite a bit to think about as our members consider their strategies. Thanks very much, Chad.
4: Thank you, Erica. Always great talking with you.
5: If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash
0: You heard a little earlier in our news segment about the CARES Act, and in this segment, we're talking about it again. Rick Kess, a partner in the healthcare practice at RSM, and Matt Wolf, a director in the healthcare practice at RSM, talked with me recently about the area of the act that most healthcare organizations don't normally have to navigate. The first voice you'll hear after mine is Kess. The CARES Act packs a lot into one piece of legislation, but one part of it that might be of particular interest to our listeners has to do with FEMA. Can you talk a little bit about that?
6: Really, from a, a FEMA perspective, um, you know, we're in a position now where all fifty states have declared an emergency related to the, to the outbreak of COVID nineteen, and what that means is effectively most not-for-profit hospitals, nursing homes, and other uh, potentially some other healthcare providers as well as governmental organizations that fall into those kind of sectors would be able to pursue FEMA funding. And that is really an opportunity for them to think about being reimbursed for some of the direct costs that they've incurred related to the outbreak. So, you know, it's not going to reimburse them for lost revenue, but it is an opportunity for them to consider funding for some of the costs that were incurred that quite frankly, a lot of our, our clients are asking about. What I would add on to that, and that
7: cost part is really important. It kind of places the burden on those recipients to record document and potentially prove out those costs in a way that they might not be tracking them today. So, you know, the, the money is there, it needs to be used for a very specific purpose, but we also need to kind of collect that data in a specific way as well. Most clients that we work with aren't, you know, very used to responding to a natural kind of FEMA type disaster. But what they may be more used to is sort of a business interruption or kind of lost profits claim. And they're not exactly the same, but there are some similarities. And one of the similarities there would be just as detailed as as you really can be. And if you have to make assumptions about you know cost like so for example if you buy certain and i don't want to get too specific right because you have to look at the facts and circumstances of how the money can be used in your exact situation but you know let's just say you buy a box of or a pallet of certain supplies and some of those could be paid for by this theme of money Um, But you use some of it in a way that could be paid for by FEMA and some that would not be right. I mean, a lot of organizations, their cost accounting system, they might just look at it by the pallet, or maybe they get down to an individual level, but they don't necessarily know how many go to this purpose, how many go to that purpose. So if you have to make an assumption about that, you know, just make a good, faith assumption um, and document it as well as you as you possibly can. That's that's really also pervasive in a lot of the, not just the FEMA part, but just the CARES Act appropriated money in general is this sort of idea of making a good faith judgment estimate documentation. So it, as detailed as you can be um, and where you have to make assumptions, make them in good faith, keep that documentation together, and uh, just kind of reevaluate as you're going through that process. Maybe looking at other examples or talking to others who might have some experience there.
6: Yeah, I would just add, you know, we've been talking with our clients across the country about FEMA disaster relief money. And, you know, what we're finding is, you know, there's a lot of hospitals, as Matt alluded to, that, you know, maybe haven't gone through a FEMA process before. Um, but, you know, we do talk to a couple of our clients, you know, one in, in particular, in like North Carolina or Florida, for instance, that, you know they've experienced hurricanes and other natural disasters and gone through FEMA processes before, but each one of those um, is still kind of questioning exactly how to go through this process because this is unlike any other disaster that FEMA has has responded to. Typically, a natural disaster happens in you know a specific zip code or a specific area, or at least a specific part of the country, where this is affecting generally speaking every. Healthcare provider across the country. And it isn't just on a specific date and time. It's a much more prolonged event. So, you know, the, the facts and circumstances related to this specific emergency, is quite different than pretty much any other emergency that we've seen.
0: If you've read anything about the CARES Act, you know we're just skimming the surface here. I asked Cass and Wolf about the biggest takeaway for our listeners, and Wolf shared a few thoughts.
7: This is a process. Um, we're, as Rick mentioned earlier, you know, we're responding to a disaster that we, you know, haven't seen for at least a 100 years, right? And this is very new to a lot of us, and the policy response is going to evolve, right? So the CARES Act appropriated a lot of money, a lot of money, trillions of dollars across the economy and you know we're still waiting for the rules on how exactly that money will be allocated appropriated and those rules could change you know i think especially for us who come from more of a finance kind of accounting background you know we're used to an environment where the rules of the game are a little more known right we um tax codes accounting pronouncements those are generally more known things and this is evolving and changing and And we're all kind of in this together. Um, It's just important to know that as we read about this coming out of that coming out, that that what it actually means, how that money will get distributed, it'll change and it'll evolve over time.
5: Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic and the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click topics, then coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. Although many of us are practicing social distancing, we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now collectively to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more. By working together, we will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA, and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you.
0: If you're a regular listener, you know how much we like to talk about how to keep a consumerism mindset. Usually when we at HFMA talk about consumerism, we're talking about the patient financial conversation. But my guest today, Aaron Bunowski, a director at the Chartist Group, is talking about how the care team fits into the topic. Consumerism in healthcare is a hot topic right now, and it's something that we talk about constantly at HFMA. And a big piece of that is good patient financial communication. But you say that there's a missing piece there, the, the care team. Tell me about that.
8: The consumer has been at the top of our minds for quite a while as decision-making and as Um, uh, power has shifted over into the hands of the individual as he or she makes decisions with regard to their care. Um, And I believe this will continue as do most of us. The the one aspect that perhaps is forgotten in all of this is the important role of the care team in meeting the wants and the needs of the consumer as that individual expresses uh, those wants and needs. The care team is really at the forefront of providing the care at the bedside, in the clinic, in the other uh, areas where consumers and patients engage with with individuals. And as those care team members are trying to understand what the individual wants, sometimes perhaps we can forget what the needs of that care team might be.
0: How can administrative leaders, particularly those in finance, because that's our audience, uh, support care teams while still working toward their own organizational goals?
8: Well, one of the things that, that especially financial leaders can can understand is that those care teams um, also have expressed wants and needs. Now, over the years, uh, care teams have been asked to do more and more. As margins have thinned, they've uh, taken on more and more responsibilities. And sometimes we talk about those responsibilities in the context of the, quote, operating at the top of license. So whatever clinical credential that individual has. Trying to help that individual work at the top of those li- at the, that license, which generally means doing those tasks and activities that are the highest and best use of his or her training. Removing administrative tasks that perhaps could be given to others. But even in that effort, perhaps the phrase that I like to use is working at top of experience. Uh, the care team experience in terms of how that individual does their work and the kinds of things that that person would do is something that we should pay attention to. And so um, financial professionals could look at making the investments that would allow that individual to not only work at the top of his or her license, but also at the top of his or her experience, meaning providing that one-on-one patient care in the best way possible. That might include investing in things that would remove the friction for that individual. For example, individuals find it difficult to, for example, uh, make appointments. For example, the scheduling individuals might find it difficult because the scheduling uh, methodologies or processes in a clinic or at a hospital might be very manual at this point. And so it requires that individual to actually engage manually with paperwork and with other, perhaps multiple systems to the extent in which investments can be made to streamline that scheduling process, for example, it would allow that individual to engage with the consumer or patient in a more personalized and a better way because we've stripped away those non-necessary tasks through perhaps digital solutions or other ways that the kind of heavy manual processes that sometimes exist uh, can be automated.
0: Now I wanna get to the elephant in the room. We are recording this on April 6th, 2020. This is an incredibly stressful time to work in healthcare, particularly on the clinical side, and many hospitals are just trying to keep their staff safe, keep their patients safe, get everybody healthy. And for everyone who's listening, when Aaron and I originally started talking about this interview, we weren't talking about it with coronavirus as part of the landscape we were planning for, but Aaron, it's here. So how does it all fit in?
8: Um, there's no doubt that uh, COVID-19 has fundamentally shifted not only our present attention, but in many ways it will shift the the future, not only near-term, but long-term future of our healthcare system. Um, uh, boy, my heart goes out to the care teams that are just fighting that heroic battle every day on the front lines, um, dealing with the significant challenges of not only the patients that are presenting with um, uh, very serious uh, conditions, But also uh, the stress of taking care of one another as they um, are working very, very long hours and trying their their best to um, work in an environment where resources are limited and and where, frankly, the danger to their personal danger is very, very high. And so uh, my first comment is just the the complete respect I have for uh, those heroic efforts. If I might kind of think about this in two ways. Um, Number one, all of these um, ideas around the consumer and the care team are probably more important now than they've ever been. When we think about the direct and most serious cases that we're dealing with, we've got the areas of New York and New Jersey, uh, California, now Louisiana, the number of cases is just overwhelming the resources that are available. You know, at those times, uh, the first priority has been and always should be the care and the safety of both the, the patients who are coming in and the care team. Now, there there are other areas of the country that have not yet or perhaps will not have this kind of large influx of individuals, uh, perhaps because they're in a more rural area, perhaps uh, because the um, local governments had put procedures in place to, to keep people at home. And perhaps uh, they have bent that curve, as we've all hoped that that happens. These kind of ideas around personalization and customization might be most applicable in those situations where, uh, for example, an individual has an extended stay, but where the acuity has not reached critical levels. There are certainly individuals who are, you know, the typical time frame is to be isolated or quarantined for 10 to 14 days, perhaps sometimes a little longer. And in that, if that acuity level isn't very high, then an individual and their families are in this extended period of isolation where not only they can engage with um, their loved ones, but also it's even very limited on what the care team can do for them. There are actually very wonderful stories um, coming out of care teams, you know, leaving notes and messages on doors and on windows for the brief time that that individual comes into the room, he or she leaves a, a very a wonderfully warm and, and compassionate message on the on the board. Um, certainly, engaging via you know text and, and phone, that's exactly what these these ideas and these principles are intended to do, so that that individual can understand how can I make this experience as good as it can be. And so I might just have those care teams that are in those kind of uh, situations where the acuity level is a little lower, but yet the isolation continues uh, to be large, um, to pay attention not only to themselves and each other in the care team and make sure that they're emotional and and uh, you know health is, is where it needs to be, but also for those patients that will sit in isolation without the higher acuity that are cognizant, that are aware, can engage, and how... Uh, He or she might engage with them in a way that uh, to to ensure that that individual's emotional health is where it needs to be. So again, uh, you know, certainly in this in this time of of great stress, we hope and pray for the safety of, of all of our care team members. And I would suggest that one other thing that can be done is the learnings out of this are will be applicable. You know, when we defeat this, when we are able to return to more normalcy, we may have really accelerated how to, to do these things, how to um, engage with our patients in, in, in much, much better ways, and perhaps we can apply that to what we do in the future.
0: You heard Mary Mirabelli at the top of the episode talking about the virtual conference, and we have a special episode of the podcast coming up where one of our recent presenters answers your questions about telehealth and the coronavirus. Check the show notes for a link to the session and a post in our community where you can ask your questions and possibly have them answered on an upcoming episode. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and special thanks to Joe as well as Mary Mirabelli and Bill Casey for joining me at the top of the episode. As always, you can reach out with your comments and questions at podcast